Hello and welcome to JG Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. As always, I'm Jeffrey, ordained minister and chaplain at JG Ministries. Glad you joined us today for another episode. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to chapter 11, verse 29 of the book of Luke. Now let's get into it. Now last time we saw Jesus meeting the opposition of his critics, and now we'll see Jesus confront his critics some more as they are wanting a sign. Now the sign of Jonah in this passage, Jesus responded to those who were prodding him for a sign from heaven beyond the miracles that Jesus had already performed. Some people resisted the testimony already obvious in his Masonic works, and they opposed an inordinate amount or inordinate demand for extraordinary miracles beyond those needed for a witness of Jesus' authority. So turn with me to verse 29. And let's go ahead and read some scriptures. I'll read verses 29 to 32 here, seeking a sign. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the son of man will be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. The men in Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. <clears throat> now, Begin with verse 29, we saw that in verse 16, some had tempted the Lord Jesus, asking him for a sign from heaven. And he now answers that request by ascribing it to an evil generation. He was speaking primarily concerning the Jewish generation, which was living at the time. They had been privileged with the presence of the Son of God. They had heard his words and had witnessed his miracles. But they were not satisfied with this. They now pretended that if they could only see a mighty supernatural work in the heavens, they would believe on him. The Lord's answer was that no further sign would be given to them except the sign of Jonah the prophet, whose presence and brief message, though more minimal compared with the preaching of Jesus, triggered immediate and widespread, widespread repentance. And in verse 30, he's referring to his own resurrection from the dead. And just as Jonah was delivered from the sea after being in the whale's belly for three days and three nights, so the Lord Jesus would rise from the dead after being in the grave for three days and three nights. In other words, the last and conclusive miracle in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus would be his resurrection. Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. When he went to preach to this Gentile metropolis, he went out as one who figuratively had risen from the dead. The preaching of Jesus carried its own authority, especially when affirmed by the power of God in miracles. And in verses 31 to 32, we have the inclusion of the Queen of Sheba, 
And you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 10, the first 13 verses. The Queen of Sheba fortifies the judgment on Jesus' generation because she traveled a great distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon. The Queen of the South, the Gentile Queen of Sheba, she traveled a great distance to hear this wisdom of Solomon. She did not see a single miracle. If she had been privileged to live in the days of the Lord, how readily she would have received him. Therefore, she will rise up in the judgment against those wicked men who were privileged to see the supernatural works of the Lord Jesus and who nonetheless rejected him. A greater than Jonah and a greater than Solomon had stepped on the stage of human history. Whereas the men of Nineveh hinted at the preaching of Jonah, the men of Israel refused to repent at the preaching of a greater than Jonah. Unbelief today scoffs at the story of Jonah, assigning it to nothing more than Hebrew legend. Jesus spoke of Jonah as an actual person of history, just as he spoke of Solomon. People who say they would believe if they could see a miracle are mistaken. <coughs> Faith is not based on evidences of the senses, but on the living word of God. If a man will not believe the word of God, he will not believe, though one should rise from the dead. The attitude that demands a sign is not pleasing to God. That is not faith. That is sight. Unbelief says, let me see, and then I will believe. But God says, believe, and then you will see. A double contrast is implied in these two examples. The first one, we have the response of the, of the audience. And the second one is the greatness of the preacher. The greater one than Solomon and Jonah is, of course, Jesus. Now let's take a look at the parable of the lighted lamp, the lamp of the body. So turn back with me to verse 33 of the scriptures. And let's read to verse 36. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a sacred place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. When your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then, you, if then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Now, hearing Jesus' message lays a responsibility on the hearer. The metaphors of light, signs, and judgment are akin to what we have in John and elsewhere in the New Testament. At first, we might think that there is no connection between these verses and the person, but on closer examination, we do find a very vital link. Jesus reminded his hearers that no one puts a lighted lamp in a cellar or under a basket, but he puts it on a lampstand where it will be seen and where it will provide light for all who enter. The application is this. God is the one who has lit the lamp. 
In the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, he provided a blaze of illumination for the world. If anyone doesn't see the light, it isn't God's fault. In chapter 8, Jesus was speaking of the responsibility of those who were already his disciples to propagate the faith and not to hide it under a vessel. And here in chapter 11, verse 33, he is exposing the unbelief of his sign-seeking critics as caused by their covetousness and fear of shame. And in verse 34, good eyes admit light, bad ones do not. Their unbelief was a result of their impure motives. In the physical realm, the eye is which gives light to the whole body. If the eye is healthy, then the person can see the light. If the eye is diseased, that is blind, then the light cannot get in. It is the same in the spiritual realm. If a person is sincere in his desire to know whether Jesus is the Christ of God, then God will reveal it to him. But if his motives are not pure, if he wants to cling to his greed, if he continues to fear what others will say, then he is blinded to the truth or, or to the true worth of the Savior. The men Jesus was addressing thought themselves to be very wise. In verse 35, they supposed that they had a great deal of light. But the Lord Jesus warned them to consider the fact that the light that was in them was actually darkness. Their own pretended wisdom and superiority kept them from Christ. And Jesus implies that the individual is responsible for receiving light. The eye is thus a lamp, not in the sense that it emits light, but that through it the body receives light. The real source of light is outside of the body. I think we can generate our own light. We must beware lest that inner light prove to be darkness. The person whose motives are pure, who opens his complete being to Jesus, the light of the world, is flooded with spiritual illumination. His inward life is enlightened by Christ, just as his body is illuminated when he sits in the direct rays of a lamp. The body is only completely lighted when a lamp shines on it from the outside. That is, full of illumination only comes when one is willing to receive light from the lamp of God. Now we move on to the outward and inward cleanliness. We have six woes. And we'll begin with the woe to the Pharisees and the lawyers. But first, let's take a look at these verses here. Begin with verse 37. And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and he sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones. He who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you Pharisees! For you tithe, mint, and rue, and all manner of herbs, and pass by justice and the love of God. Those you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisee, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. 
one of the answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. And as he had said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. <clears throat> now, verses 37 and 38, one, one quick point I want to mention when you see the word woe, and I'm sure many of you know this. When you see Jesus using the word woe, that is basically he's saying warning to you all. That's what woe means. What's going to be coming after he says, well, we've got some warnings coming. But in verses 37 to 38, Luke gives us a concise selection of the indictments that Matthew records in Matthew chapter 23. These point up some of the most common of the sins that characterize strict religious persons. And we'll see some of these throughout here with the hypocrisy, verses 39 to 41. Imbalance in verse 42. We'll see ostentation in verse 43. We'll see impossible demands in verse 46. Verses 47 to 51, we'll see intolerance. And in verse 52, we will see exclusiveness. In a way typical of his use of material, Luke puts the major discourse in the setting of a dinner that Jesus himself attended. Having accepted table fellowship with a Pharisee, Jesus offended his host by omitting the customary ritual washing prior to eating. When Jesus accepted the invitation of a dinner, his host was shocked that he had not first washed before dinner. This was the custom. This is what you were supposed to do. But Jesus read his thoughts and thoroughly rebuked him for such hypocrisy and externalism. So now we see in verses 39 to 40, Jesus implies that in their freed and wickedness, the Pharisees were depriving the poor of the very food and drink that were inside their own carefully washed dishes. And Jesus reminded him that what really counts is not the cleanliness of the outside of the cup, but the cleanliness of the inside. In Jesus' estimation, the Pharisees had lost the heart of their religion. And to finish up here with verse 41, Jesus offers a positive corrective that clearly shows he did not oppose strict attention to religious duties, but rather the neglect of the caring about of the people. The Lord realized how covetous and selfish these Pharisees were. So Jesus told his host first to give alms of such things as he had. If he could pass this basic test of love to others, then indeed all things would be clean to him. When the love of God fills the heart, 
so that one will be concerned about the needs of others. Then only will those or these outward observances have any real value. He who is constantly gathering up for himself in utter indifference to the poor and the needy about him gives evidence that the love of God does not dwell in him. And I'm going to stop there for this time. Next time we will see more of the Pharisees rebuked by Jesus and get into some more of the woes. So until next time, God bless you and keep living Christian strong.